You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. We're going to talk about judgment today. Sound good? Yay! Um, Hey, okay, here's how I'm going to start. I'm going to start by saying this. I'm going to start by saying I think nowadays... um, in our city, uh, especially amongst people who are uh, generally from the ages of 18 to 49, uh, which means most of us here, uh, that there is this thing that we do where we can claim to be a victim, we can claim to be a victim and consider ourselves to be untouchable because of that claim. I'll say that again. We claim to be victim and then we consider ourselves untouchable because of that claim. So first off, let's clarify. There are real victims out there, okay? I think the Stanford rape case has showed us very much so that anyone who is a victim or has been sexually assaulted is indeed a victim, and there's no debate about that, and as a church, we do our best to make sure uh, that we see sexual assaults eradicated, okay? That's, that's legitimate. Who else? Uh, people of color are 14 times more likely to go to prison than people who are Caucasian, there's some legitimate victimizing going on there, okay? Those are victims. Um, uh, people who are refugees who have a 50-50 chance to um, actually make it to another country because of an oppressive government, that is victimization. They are victims. That's real victimization. They're real victims, okay? I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about when we claim to be victim so that we basically can manipulate a situation. So for instance, I have a pastor friend of mine and this pastor friend of mine, he says to me, he tells me a story and he goes, a, a person came up to me and they said, uh, hey, your message, uh, you didn't use gender neutral pronouns and that was very offensive to me. And so the pastor said, I'm sorry about that, I'll work on that. And this person said, well, uh, I don't think I'm gonna come back to this church though because you don't use gender neutral pronouns. And that is claiming to be a victim in order not to hold yourself accountable to something. So instead of just having a conversation, instead of working with this pastor, instead of explaining to this pastor, you just leave the situation. You don't hold yourself accountable, and you leave the church over gender-neutral pronouns. What else? Uh, One of the people I love dearly here at this church, someone I love dearly, uh, had a really tough conversation a couple weeks ago. And he had this conversation with his friend, and he was holding his friend accountable, trying to help his friend to understand maybe a few things his friend didn't quite understand. And this friend turned around and basically sabotaged the person I love, their work. Basically turned around and did that. That is claiming to be a victim. What that says is you can't, you can't hold me accountable. You can't call me out on things. If you call me out on things, I'm going to passive-aggressively turn around, and I'm going to make this bad for you. Okay, that's what it means to be a victim. This is the kind of victimization I'm talking about. We claim to be victim and it makes us untouchable. And then there's the big one. As a pastor, I hear it all the time. Um, don't judge me, right? Don't judge me. God doesn't judge, right? How often do you hear that? Jesus doesn't judge. Jesus never judges. And then what's the big verse that everybody says? You all know it. You've all said it before. Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? Jesus never judged anybody, Judge not lest ye be judged. That's what I hate about Christians. They're always judging people, right? There's that sense, right? That, that, this, this thing that happens. Um, and I get it. I, I get that. I've said that before. I've said to people, judge not lest ye be judged. And I've said it under the guise of, of um, not wanting people to mess with what I was doing. What I was doing might not have been that great. And they were like, what you're doing is not that great. I was like, judge not lest ye be judged. How many people have done it? Thanks. No, more than two people have done that. Come on. 
All of you in this room have done that. <laughs> you know what that kind of judgment is? That's the victimization I'm talking about. That's being a victim in order to be untouchable. When we say, judge not, lest ye be judged. When we say, God didn't judge, Jesus doesn't judge. Like, when we say that stuff, what we're doing is we're saying to somebody, you know what? I won't engage with you in something that might make me a more mature human being. I might not do any moral work on myself. I might not have to forgive. I might not have to be forgiven. I might not have to take a journey. I might not have to go down on a path. I'm going to stop this right now. I'm going to say I'm a victim. Don't judge me, right? We always make jokes about it. Don't judge me. And so what I do, what I'm going to do is today present to you Exhibit A in our Misused Scripture series, Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged. Let me tell you right off the bat that this is absolutely a passage about judgment, okay? Absolutely. Let me tell you off the bat that Jesus judged people. It happened. We can call him Jesus the judger, okay? Because he did. He judged people. He absolutely judged people, okay? And this passage, if we, if we continue with the passage, and I'll continue reading it, so it's judge not lest ye be judged. By the way, why do we only know it in the King James Version? Like, do you know it in the NIV or another version? Yeah, I feel like I don't. <laughs> anyway, so then uh, Jesus goes on to say, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what's going on? Jesus is talking to our good friends, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are like, we're good, we're amazing because we follow the law. I judge people who don't follow the law. And Jesus says, no, it's not really about the law anymore. I'm trying to get you into a just and generous expression of the faith. And those people that you're judging over there, they actually have life together a little bit better than you do. That is basically what Jesus is saying. So um, he's telling them to stop, be, stop being hypocrites. It's like, uh, I don't know, we all have that friend who loves ecological justice. Ecological justice, do you have that friend? Yeah, and then you go to that friend's apartment and you realize their carbon footprint's like the size of Texas. And you're like, I thought you like, that's the kind of judgment that Jesus is talking about here. Judge that person. That person doesn't deserve to be talking about ecological justice. No, that's what Jesus is saying for the most part, okay? Um, and this is what I love, right? Notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, take the log out of your own eye, get yourself right, and then leave the speck in the other person's eye because we don't, because we don't judge. Just leave it there. no. He says, hey, take care of yourself, be accountable, grow in maturity, and then you can help your friend, your brother, your sister grow in maturity. They, they can grow in that way. This is absolutely a passage about judgment. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk specifically about our church, okay? I want to talk specifically about the way that our church operates, some of the things that our church does. I think uh, I want to talk about how I believe that our church uh, can actually grow and become better all with judgment. This is going to be a little odd, all right? You ready? You're going to have to follow me, okay? I'm just telling you, you're going to have to follow me. I'm going to go on a little trail. You can go on a little trail with me? All right, let's go. Okay. When people like us, they say that we are a grace-filled church. When people like our church, they say, this is a grace-filled church. It's an amazing church. It's grace-filled. And I love that. I love the fact that we are called a grace-filled church. I love the fact that, that we don't make blanket statements on people. What we do is we know somebody. We get to know them. We love them. And, and that's, uh, we, we hope that we love people the same way that Jesus loves people, right? That's what we want to do. We're a grace-filled church. I like that. Now, on the other hand, there are some people who have said this directly to me. They said, you're not really a church at all. You're just a community where anything goes. That's what you are. 
And in some ways, I get it. In some ways, I get it because we've, known, we've been known in this church to, to have a decent time and, and to maybe make a, a few poor decisions, but who hasn't? We just happen to do them on Sundays. So, you know, I get why people would say what they would say about that too. And, and what's interesting to me, when people say this to me, it makes me think about judgment in our church. And so what I have to do is talk specifically about it. I was called to lead a church where people wanted to see Christianity in a new way. Okay, I was called to lead a church where people wanted to see Christianity uh, uh, through maybe you know, breaking down and then building back up what, what their Christian relationship could look like. I was called to lead a church to have people who said, you know what, Christianity doesn't work for me anymore. I, I want us to be a church. We said, no, it actually works here. This is the place that it works. That's the kind of church I want. And when you have that kind of church, what you're doing is you're fighting against a popular narrative, okay? Let me talk to you about the popular narrative. This is where I said we're going down like a little path, all right? Follow me. We're going down the, so the popular narrative is this. The popular narrative is that God delivers the people out of Israel uh, or out of Egypt and they were uh, slaves and now the Israelites are free and God says, you know what? I want you to be free so I give you the Torah. The Torah is going to help you. It's the Ten Commandments. They're gonna help you to live freely instead of living like a slave. And so you're going to live in freedom if you're not killing other people. That's probably a good idea, okay? You're going to live in freedom if you're not stealing. Stealing's only gonna make chaos. You'll live in freedom if you're not stealing. You might wanna rest. When you were slaves, you didn't get to rest. So to live in freedom means to take a Sabbath. So we have all these laws, right, these rules. Now, what has happened, or what the narrative has become, is that these rules have not been about God's love for us and about freedom, but they've sort of been flipped. And these rules are, God is angry with us, and God needs us to follow the laws. And if we don't follow the laws, God gets even more angry with us. Okay, we, we've ch- kind of changed the narrative. God sees us as broken because we have not followed these laws. We're sinners. God can't stand the sight of sin. And so God separates God's self from us. And we're separate from God. And so there's something that's fear-based there. I need to follow the law and God loves me. I don't follow the law and, and, and God doesn't love me. And so all of a sudden... Uh, God's happiness is based on whether or not we're following the law. Now, Jesus plays into that too because along comes Jesus and, and what we have heard and I think the narrative that we've heard over and over uh, is this, that, that God can't stand the sight of us, God is separate from us, so God needs a, a sacrifice to make in order to see us as good again or see us as loved again and Jesus is that sacrifice. So Jesus dies and he dies on the cross and now finally God can connect with us again because a sacrifice has been made. That has been the narrative Now it sounds like a very Christian narrative. It sounds like a good thing in some ways. I'm going to tell you why it's troubling. It's troubling because it's a narrative that is based on fear. It's a narrative that says there's a God who at some point was separated from me, who did not like me. And this God actually had to kill God's son in order to see me as good again. And when we have that narrative of fear, there's always this safe box that we have. And this safe box says, I'm safe here, and so I'm going to do these things in this place so that I don't get God angry. And I know Jesus died for me, but that seems violent, and I'm afraid of it, and, and, um, and so I'm just going to be safe, right? And so it's in our safety that we have, as, and I'm saying we, I'm saying big church, I'm saying American Christians, have put judgments on other people. Now I think that narrative doesn't work for many of us anymore. I think that narrative that God is angry and God is upset and God has God's finger on the button ready to send you to hell does not work. This is the way that sin and judgment would be classified under that old narrative. It's classified like this, and I wrote it down. I didn't want to get it wrong. In this old narrative, 
Sin is that which qualifies a person for God's judgment, and God's judgment is God's action whereby sinners are sent to hell. I think that's a scary, I think that's what we think. Follow the law, we don't go to hell. Don't follow the law, we do go to hell. Thank God for Jesus, God couldn't stand us. All of us were headed for hell. It's a narrative of fear. And so what I think happens is when we deconstruct this narrative of fear, there's a sense in which we deconstruct it all the way. Like we move from an angry God all the way over here to a loving God. So God is angry, I'm afraid of God. God um, was separate from me. Oh no, no, God loves me completely. God loves all of me. I can do anything I want to do. We toss judgment. We throw judgment away altogether. In fact, I had a really good friend of mine at our church. He uh, said to me maybe a year ago now, he goes, uh, he goes you know what? Uh, I love that I go to this church because I don't feel guilty about doing X. And X is this thing that he was doing that is not good. It's just not. And that's what he said. And I was like, oh, man, we've, we've missed the point. We've missed the point. Yes, we're, we're working away from an angry God to understanding a loving God, but we don't just go from one fundamental side to another fundamental side that says we, anything goes, we do whatever we want. So what do we do in this situation? Um, well, let's talk about the way God loves us. First of all, God is love, but the way my friend who's doing X would have it, it would have it look like um, maybe one of our childhood friends. Raise your hand if you had that kid, like you all hung out, but there was always a kid in your group that was allowed to do whatever they wanted. Did anybody have that? I have one kid, Mikey. Mikey was his name. And uh, I remember so well, we all wanted to go see Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6. And, uh, and none of our parents would let us. And Mikey was like, I can go. And we were like, Mikey's so lucky. And then when the street lights would come on, like we all had to pedal home. And Mikey was allowed to stay out past when the streetlights went on. We were like, Mikey's so lucky. And, you know, like, we always had to, like, you know, earn money for allowance, and Mikey just got money off his parents' dresser. We were like, Mikey's so lucky. And then you realize when you're older, oh, Mikey had a really sad childhood. That's what you begin to realize. Mikey's parents didn't quite care about him the way that our parents cared about us. And so when we talk about love, love is not anything goes, do whatever you want. It's not this giant move over this way from an angry, vindictive God here. No, there's something different. And this is who our church is. This is who I want our church to be. Our church is a church that believes in the word teshuva. Okay, teshuva is a Jewish word. It's a Hebrew word. You guys, you know I love using these Hebrew words. This word teshuva is this really beautiful word, and this is what it means. It means you are God's divine. That's what it means. Teshuva means that you are God's divine. It means that God has breathed into you. Uh, in some translations, it means that God is hugging you. It's kind of nice, right? Teshuva. That's our identity. Our identity is Teshuva. And so we start with Teshuva. We start with the idea that God has always loved us, that God is hugging us, that God has breathed into us, that God is divine, that God is not angry. God does not have God's finger on the trigger ready to send us to hell. Teshuva. God says, you are part of me and I'm a part of you. How can I show you how much I love you? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a part of myself, Jesus, to the, to the earth and show you how much I love you. And now Jesus comes and Jesus loves those who are unlovable, eats with those who nobody wants to eat with, talks to those who nobody wants to talk to, heals in radical ways, is selfless in radical ways, and God says, you want to see how much I love my people, the teshuva? It's this much. You want me to see how selfless I am? You want to see how much I love you? 
in the most selfless of ways, I'm going to kill a part of myself to show you how much I love you, to show you how selfless I am, to show you the passion that I have for you, my creation, your teshuva. And so we have Jesus on the cross. It changes the way we look at the cross. It changes the way we look at God. God's not bringing Jesus to the cross because God was angry and needed to change God's mind about us. God brings Jesus to the cross so that we can see how much we are loved by God. And so sin and judgment looks different in this way. Because we are loved by God in such a way, we are loved by God in such a way that God says, I want you, creation, you who have to shuva, I want you to bring peace to my kingdom. I want you to make my kingdom right. I want you to make it what I intended. I'm going to partner with you to do that. And so under this, this new kind of way of looking at sin and judgment, uh, sin is the thing we've been talking about. It's that thing that disrupts God's desire for creation. I've been saying this a lot. Sin disrupts the peace that God intends for the world. I've been saying it all the time. And I've been making fun of all of us saying we go outside and we're going to disrupt the peace that God intends for creation, right? That's what sin is. But here's judgment. And this is where it gets important. This is judgment. God's judgment is God's restorative justice in action. And that includes naming sin as sin, and it includes calling people to repentance and transformation, and it includes setting things right. But I'll tell you what it doesn't include, this threat of eternal torment. It doesn't include you having to be living in constant fear that God's going to discipline you or punish you or strike you dead over something that went wrong. It broke my heart two weeks ago when I was here and somebody said to me, legitimately, I said, GD, is God going to take away my career? Like, that's the old kind of God. The new kind of God says, you're loved. Are you a sinner? Absolutely. Do you need to start working to maybe be more selfless, to maybe uh, help partner with me to bring peace to this place? Yes. And that's the judgment that we should have for one another. It's a judgment that holds each other accountable. So back to my friend who does X, right? I'm glad that God loves you. I'm glad that you feel like you can do X and, and not feel guilty. But let me ask you a question. Is X, is that X, is it, um, is it bringing people together? Is it uniting people? Is X showing selfless love to people? Is X um, um, giving people grace when they don't deserve it? Or is X maybe a very selfish thing? Is X divisive? Is X one of these things that, that, that are hurting others, that are not allowing God to partner with you. And if that's the case, there should be judgment. If that's the case, our community should be saying to one another, hey, X doesn't work. We are teshuva, we are loved, we are a part of the divine and God wants to use us and that X that's happening that we're doing, it doesn't work, it doesn't bring that peace. Let's change that. It's a different way of looking at judgment. It's not saying, I'm judging you and you're going to go to hell because you do X. It says, no, God loves you so much, God wants to partner with you. Stop doing that so you can partner with God. That's the kind of judgment I want for our church. That's the kind of judgment I feel like we can have in this church. There's all these passages on judgment in Scripture. I literally picked one at random um, because I think when you read them in this context, it's all good news. So Psalm 98, right? And it'll be up on the board and I'm going to read parts of it. Um, shout, shout for joy to, uh, to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with a harp, with the harp and the sounds of singing, with trumpets and blasts of ram's horn. 
Shout for joy. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together. For, uh, uh, for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the, wor- the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, I used to read this and under the old way, I'd be like, wow, everybody's all excited because pretty soon God's gonna come and send people to hell. Like, that's how I felt about it. And now I'm like, no. There's clapping and singing and praising because what God does is he comes, he says, this is my love that I have for you. See it up there on the cross. And because you can see it up there on the cross, know that I'm partnering with you to bring peace to this place. Will you join me in bringing peace to this place? And bringing peace to this place means we bring judgment on one another when we're not doing the stuff that brings peace. Church, let's hold one another accountable. Let's do it. I love the fact that we are a grace-filled church. I love it. I love the fact that we don't make blanket statements on anybody that you come in and we recognize, ooh, that person has teshuva, that person's a child of God. We'll treat them as such. I love that about our church. I love the fact that we are a church that believes in a selfless, unrelenting, never-ending love of God. I love that about our church. I don't ever want to be a church where anything goes. It's just one form of fundamentalism against another. And so if that's the case, then I call us for spiritual maturity. If we see somebody doing X, say, hey, X isn't helping you and it's not helping this city. And that starts with me. If you see me doing something that doesn't bring the peace that God intends, if you see me doing something that that isn't selfless, that isn't Christ-like, I hope that you'll start by calling me out. Because here's the deal, I really believe this. We changed our vision statement not too long ago saying that we can be a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. I believe that we will be the most just and the most generous and we will change systems. I believe that if we are ruthless in the way that we hold one another accountable. If we are ruthless in the way that we forgive one another, if we are ruthless in the way that we accept forgiveness, if we are ruthless in the way that we grow and we push ourselves to be more mature, if we are ruthless in the way that we see the grace of Jesus Christ all the time and do nothing but be in awe over it, that's when we win. That's when we celebrate. That is when we bring about just and generous Christianity. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we're so thankful that your judgment upon us is love. But we're so thankful that uh, your judgment upon us is pointing towards continued growth, continued beauty, continued movement towards the divine, continued movement towards your good work, continued movement towards the peace that you intend. Lord, We pray boldly that you would give us a swift kick in the butt. Let us go to that place along that journey. And as a church, that we be a church that points one another along that journey as well. And every time we get it wrong, we're thankful that we don't have to be afraid of you, God. You are a God who loves in such selfless ways as to celebrate the death and resurrection of your son. We pray this in your name. Amen.